And shouldn't we be reading from 1 Peter 4, Peter's first epistle, verses 12 to 19. So the subheading is suffering for being a Christian. Peter says to all of us, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is hard for the righteous to be saved. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Thanks, Neil. You're welcome to leave your Bibles open there. That's the passage we are diving into today. Well, Christians uh, often talk about being in the world, but not of the world. And we've been thinking about that in this series too. How we live here on earth, but we're not from here. And our home is, is really somewhere else. And I think that sometimes that gets really confusing for us. You might call it a, a cross-cultural confusion. Uh, so allow me to just give a, a small example. The other week I was enjoying a delightful craft beer. Uh, for those who are interested in this stuff, it was an oat cream single hop IPA. And it was called Pursuit of Hoppiness Number 9, because each release is a bit of a different brew. And I made the comment to Kath as I was drinking this beer, I said, oh, I wonder if these guys are, are Christian brewers. And this is just a small nod to Jerry Bridges' classic Christian book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And of course, she was quick to correct me with a little bit of a dir tone that the tribute is far more likely to be to the widely known book and movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. Duh. So that was a bit of a humbling experience for me because I am a big movie fan. But it's just one small example of cross-cultural confusion. By the way, I'm also a huge fan of that Jerry Bridges book. Uh, and if you've never read it, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, it is fantastic and I highly recommend it. Uh, it's really good as a Christian classic. But it is holiness that we have been broadly considering over the last few weeks in 1 Peter. Holiness in action. What it means to be set apart whilst being in the world. Being in the world but not of it. Living here as what Peter calls us foreigners and exiles and yet having our home in heaven. And this morning we're reminded that nothing makes Christians stand out more. Nothing sets them apart more 
than the ability to rejoice in suffering. That is the most holy in many ways that we can be, to rejoice in suffering, to have joy and peace and hope despite hardships and pain. There are not many other people who can boast that. And it's not just a prominent display of holiness. It's actually a much deeper definition for freedom. For freedom. You know, true freedom is not found in democracy. It's not found in capitalism. It's not what governments can give you or can take away. No, true freedom is the ability to rejoice in suffering. Because the greatest thing of all, salvation, Jesus, the gospel, can never be taken from us. It's always ours to cherish. It's kept in heaven for you as an inheritance that never perishes or spoils or fades away. And so from the second half of 1 Peter 4, we're going to consider the reasons for our suffering, the possible reactions to suffering, then the reasons to rejoice, and finally, the reactions of said rejoicing. So why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? This is a question that we considered just a few weeks ago in the afternoon service. Why do we suffer? And if you want the broader exploration of that question, then I encourage you to have a listen to that service online. But this morning, we're just going to zoom in to this particular passage and find that the answer to that question, particularly there in verse 19, is that we suffer according to God's will. We suffer because God wills it. I.e., if it's not for being a criminal, or as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, for being a jerk. It's God's will that we suffer. Just as it was God's will that Jesus suffer. And we don't suffer in the same way as him, but we suffer by the same will, which is God's. Now that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? I mean, are you kidding me? God wants me to suffer? I I thought that he was good and that he was loving and that he was kind. Why would he want me to suffer? Allow me to just clarify a couple of things. It was not God's will in creation that we suffer. It was not his design for us. His design for us was that we would live in perfection and in enjoyment of him and of his world and and just be laughing and happy all the time. But it is God's will in redemption that we suffer. Because we are weak and broken and corrupted by sin. And so he wills us to suffer in order to teach us and to grow us and to transform us. And see, I'm not talking here about a suffering of rejection or damnation, such as if you were, are a criminal who is sentenced. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer that suffering, and it's God's will for those who live and die without Jesus to suffer that suffering. But for those who repent and believe, we're talking about a suffering of restoration and of healing. A good suffering. It's the pruning of dead branches. 
It's the forging of metal in fire. It's the healing of broken bones or torn skin. It's the learning and the growing and the testing. In verse 12, Peter says that the fiery ordeal has come upon you to test you. To test you. And it points back to chapter 1, verse 7, which is just where we left off at the start of the service. He says there are these trials from verse 6, these trials, and it's the same word as the word test here in our passage. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, one way that you can still test the authenticity of gold is to put a flame to it. Fake gold will blacken when you put a flame to it. Or if it's a really thin plating, that will just melt away and you'll see the metal that's beneath. But real gold will brighten and will keep its colour. And so it goes with our faith. It is tested by suffering and by trials and by temptations, revealing whether it is genuine or not, whether it is authentic. And so faith in ourselves or faith in anything other than Jesus will blacken and fail, guaranteed. But faith in Jesus will brighten and will strengthen. It will be proven not because of our own strength, but because of the strength of the one that we believe in. So yes, God wills our suffering to redeem and restore, to teach and to test, to grow and to heal us. So then how do we react? How do we react to pain and hardship? How do we react to opposition and persecution? How do we react to discipline and correction? Well, there's two options. Outrage or rejoicing. Self-pity or celebration. Complaint or praise. In verse 12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Expect it. It's not strange. It's not weird. It's, it's God's will. It's the norm. You read about suffering in your Bibles all the time. Why think that it won't happen to you? You live in a broken, sinful world. Why think that that's not going to affect you personally? You are surrounded by people who don't believe in Jesus or who think that we came from monkeys or who don't know if life means anything at all. Why think that they will value what you value? You believe that we are all sinners and that those who don't trust Jesus are heading for hell and they know that you think that. Why expect that they won't be offended by it? 
And finally, you follow Jesus, who is the perfect God-man, who loved everyone without fault. And yet he was still rejected and mocked and tortured and executed. Why think that we who are selfish and sinful would receive better treatment than our humble saviour? So don't be surprised. Don't be outraged. Don't be scandalised by the opposition. The kingdom of God, it is completely countercultural. To the world around us, it is foolishness. It is completely upside down. And so it will, and we will, because of it, stand out like sore thumbs. And that's good. If you're going to be surprised, be surprised that it hasn't happened more before this. See, Peter could easily be saying here, guys, don't be scandalized and victimized at your suffering as though you're already home in heaven. You're not. You're in a deeply divided, deeply fractured world. And you are often being pulled apart by its influence, like a man being drawn by the ropes. And that's bound to be painful. So what's the alternative? Well, it's right there in verse 13, but rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice. And later in verse 16, praise God. Praise God for your sufferings. James says it in his letter, consider it pure joy. Pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Paul says it in his second letter to the Corinthians, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults and in hardships and in persecutions and in difficulties. I mean, how can these guys say that? How are we supposed to say that and do that? What are the reasons for rejoicing? Well, according to James, it's that trials produce perseverance and maturity. They grow us. According to Paul, it's that when we are weak, then we are strong in Christ. They push us more to the gospel. And according to Peter, well, there's three reasons that Peter gives us to rejoice in suffering. Firstly, it's because you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You participate in the suffering of Jesus who suffered such great opposition and persecution for you. Of Jesus who bled and died on the cross for you. Of Jesus who bore God's wrath and judgment for you. In suffering, we meet with Jesus, the great sufferer. We meet with him. Just as we meet with him when we read God's word. We call it a means of grace. And, and as we meet with him when we pray, again, it's a means of grace. 
And as we meet with him, when we gather around the Lord's Supper, it's a means of grace that God gives us. And, and, and as we meet with him, when we just come together as a church, it is a means of grace. In the same way, when we suffer, we meet with our Saviour. Suffering is a means of grace. Secondly, it's so that you may be overjoyed when Christ's glory is revealed. That is when you meet with him finally in glory. We have all these kind of partial ways of meeting with Jesus, but one day when we meet with him in the air in glory, we'll be overjoyed. Rejoicing becomes overjoy. In his suffering, it's already been revealed to us, but his glory... We don't know that to its fullest yet. That's still to become crystal clear. But when it is, we will meet with him face to face and all of that suffering will just fade away completely. Only glory and perfection and joy will remain that day. As Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, Now if we are children, well then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And in Colossians chapter 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. As I read through the the Bibles for the persecuted devotions, this joy is displayed over and over again. New converts willing to undergo all sorts of pain and punishment because the joy of the gospel far outweighs any suffering that they'll undergo. As one man named Sunday Singh once said after his conversion, he says, Some said I was mad, some that I had dreamed. But when they saw that I was not to be turned, they began to persecute me. But the persecution was nothing compared with that miserable unrest I had had when I was without Christ. And it was not difficult for me to endure the troubles and persecution which now began. Again, 2 Corinthians 4 comes to mind. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And then finally, suffering shows that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering and persecution according to Peter, are blessings. They're blessings. They are evidence that God is living within you. They are evidence that you live for more than what this world offers and you belong to heaven instead. They are evidence that you are anointed and appointed for the goal of the gospel. What's your definition of blessing? Is it a free country? Is it a big family? 
Is it material wealth and possessions? Is it a long, long life? Let me tell you that none of these things are blessings in and of themselves. Especially if you have any of them without Jesus. But blessing, true blessing is the gift of God's Spirit. Himself in us, even during suffering or pain or persecution. Persecution, no matter what. So again, I come back to our reaction. But this time I just want to focus a little more on the action part of the word rather than the response part of the word. Three actions that flow out of our rejoicing. And the first one is this, test yourselves. Test yourselves. Suffering is God's test of your faith, but you can also use it to test yourself. Especially if you are not rejoicing. If you can't rejoice in it. If that's the case, if you're outraged or you're victimized by your suffering, ask yourself why. Is it because I idolize safety and comfort? Is that my God? Is it it because I feel entitled to a cruisy life and that suffering should be for other people and not me? Is it because I'm failing to believe that Jesus can use this for my good and my growth? Behind all of our actions, behind all of our behavior, behind all of our attitudes, there are always these small crises of faith. There are always these challenges of of unbelief. And our self-pity or our anger or whatever it might be can so easily be stemming from an unbelief in God's sovereignty or in God's mercy or in God's goodness or in God's glory. And so Paul, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Then secondly, commit yourselves to your faithful creator. It's right there in verse 19. He is committed to you. He is the faithful one. So that we can only in response be committed to him. Or to put it a little more challengingly, surrender yourselves to him. Surrender yourselves to him. Remember our hope and holiness is not in our rights and liberties. It's not in our independent autonomy in this world. Not even a little bit, not even close. Our hope and holiness is in submission to the ultimate authority, our King and our Creator God. We're not called to suffer for the sake of freedom itself. Like William Wallace who fought the English oppression in Scotland and was executed for it. And apparently as he was being disemboweled, he cried out freedom and it inspired everyone. Or maybe that was just Hollywood. That's not our suffering. We suffer for our subjection to the most loving, beautiful, wonderful Lord, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So commit to him and then 
Also in verse 19, continue to do good. They're the last words of this passage, of this part of Peter's thought. Continue to do good. What's Peter saying here? He's saying don't wallow in self-pity. Don't burrow into your outrage or your victimhood. Don't withdraw in despair. Get on with the mission that God has called you to. To do good, to serve others, to offer hospitality, to speak the words of God. These things we looked at in verses 7 to 11 last week. To use your suffering for the good of others. In Christ, we are always free, always. And we can always do the work of the gospel. Even if we are in prison, we can do gospel good. Even if we are bedridden in hospital, we can do gospel good. Even if we are days or even hours from death, we can do gospel good. So don't be scandalized by suffering. Accept it. Use it. And get on with the work of the gospel. 